We pick up this morning in Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, but we can only do that properly with a short review, and we will do that by going back to chapter 4, verse 25. If you have the ESV, I use the ESV here, and there is a break in the text between verse 31 and verse 32. Unfortunate break in the ESV because verse 32 gives the reason why what Moses says in verses 25 and following, uh, why he can say those sorts of things. And so verse 32 in the ESV begins with, For ask now, which means, given what I have just said, how do you know this is true? Well, let me invite you to ask why what I have just said is true. And then he goes on with his thought in verse 32 and following. So what we're going to do is pick up in verse 25. What is it that Moses said? First, Moses predicts Israel's future apostasy through idolatry. Verse 25, when you father children's children and have grown old in the land. Forget the if. When you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and so provoke him to anger. They will face the consequence of being removed through the land. I call heaven and earth as witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land, and they will perish through death and exile. You will not live long in it, but you will be utterly destroyed. Verse 27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. The worst consequence comes in verse 28, which is spiritual blindness and stupidity. There you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Strangely, without giving any reason, Moses sets right next to that Statement of Israel's idolatry in foreign lands, verse 29. He predicts Israel's return not to the land, but to the Lord. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. In other places, Moses will connect that uh, through the Lord's teaching, how that will work out. Now, I'll draw that out in just a moment. But here's the condition in which they will find the Lord. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days. The ESV uh, nor the Hebrew have then you will return to the Lord. But that is the connection from going from idolatry in the land to seeking the Lord in that land. Israel's recognition of their great distress. It is the angst that they feel that caused them to turn back to the Lord. Angst is not a bad thing in the life of an unbeliever. It can be a tremendously wonderful thing when that angst directs them back to the Lord. Um, Just mention that in connection a little bit with Benita's prayer request about her niece. Uh, Difficult times can be wonderful things. And even David will say in the Psalms, before I went astray, um, or before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I seek your word. So affliction can have tremendously wonderful, godly consequences in its wake as well. And that's the connection between going from worshiping idols in a foreign land to worshiping the Lord. But then verse 31, why is it that they will be able to find God? It's not based in their turning, but in the Lord's character. For the Lord, your God, is a merciful or compassionate God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So Moses predicts Israel's apostasy and then Israel's return, made possible because of the Lord's compassion or mercy. But what is Moses' confidence that these things are really going to happen? 
What is Moses' confidence that the people will return to the Lord? He doesn't look to Israel's own character. What he does is he looks to the way the Lord has dealt with his people in the past. And that's what comes in verse 32 and following. So, Moses' confidence of reconciliation is based on God's election and his power. His sovereign election and his power. So he tries to provoke Israel's confidence that the Lord intends good things for his people by drawing them to look again not only to Israel's past, but to the past of human existence and human experience. So, verse 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Specifically, what are they supposed to ask regarding? Verse 33, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? So verse 33 shows Israel that God intends Israel to live. And not only to live, but to live in relationship with him. No people have ever heard God's voice and lived You've lived. So God obviously intends good things for you. And we know not only because you still live after hearing the Lord's voice, but he's also brought his power to bear on your behalf as well. Verse 34. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war. By a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. So that is God's power leveraged for Israel's benefit. Both God's voice, the words that he's given, and the life he's let them live, as well as the power that he has displayed are for a purpose. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. So the revelations of God's instruction and the revelation of God's power are designed to lead Israel to the unmistakable conclusion that there is one God and there is no other. No other God has done these sorts of things and the Lord has never done this for any other sort of people. Israel alone has received this benefit, and Yahweh alone has spoken this instruction and done these powers. Now Israel, by her own experience, can testify to that exact same thing. So chapter 4, verse 36. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice, that he might discipline you, and on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. So Israel, of all people, have the least reason to doubt Moses' conclusion that the Lord means good for his people and that he has done for them what nothing, nothing, he has done for them what no one else has ever done for anyone else. And so we are brought back to the same place as we were at the beginning of Deuteronomy 4. Israel's history is primarily one of failure because Israel did not listen to the voice of the Lord. And here again, that voice is what Moses draws on in verse 36. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. So if we want to grow in our confidence of God's exclusive control over events, if we want to grow in our confidence of his authority over our thinking, much like we heard this morning in the message, and if we want to grow in our confidence that the Lord is with us for blessing, the two things we ought to focus on is first history, redemptive history broadly, and our history in particular. Has the Lord done things 
for us that he has not done for everyone else, to which we would say yes. And the second thing is we must immerse ourselves in listening. Moses began chapter 4 with listen, pay attention to the words that the Lord is speaking. And here towards the end of his address in chapter 4, his sermon in chapter 4 is almost done, he comes back again to the words that the Lord has spoken. Those are what reveal God's power and goodwill to us. Now it is interesting, I think, that on these two things, Christians always fall. We either distrust God's intentions or we distrust his power. Those are the two things Moses is drawing Israel to look at. Look at God's intentions and look at his power. All of our unrest seems to come from not thinking that God either means good things for us or that he is unable to do what we imagine. Um, Think for just a moment. All of us have loved ones who don't trust the Lord. They don't walk in the way of the Lord. How many of us are so confident in the power of the Lord that we are uh, eager to share with our unbelieving relatives not only what the Lord has done, but what he expects of them. We think, I don't know if the Lord can actually change this person's heart. I don't know that, that he actually either intends to do that, which we can't presume upon one way or the other, or that his word is actually going to do anything, right? So how many times do we think, I could say this, but it's not really going to make a difference anyway. What Moses is pleading with Israel for is don't think that way. Not just in regards to other people, but in regard to your own case. Pay attention to the word of the Lord. That is what brings you... Look at verse 36, right? Verse 36 begins with, you heard his voice, and then it closes with, you heard his words. Voice and words. And in between there sits to discipline you. In order to bring about a change in the way you think. In order to bring about a change in the way you live. There are words given. And those words have power in their work. And so, verse 36 leads us with that conclusion. The power of the word. And the power of the Lord over all the events of history as well. If we were to jump back. Uh, a few verses. So we often doubt God's power. We have a hypothetical knowledge of God's power, but uh, a much poorer functioning knowledge of God's power. And the second thing, we often tend to doubt are, are God's intentions. Now we cannot say with any conclusive confidence, maybe, that the Lord intends good things for our unbelieving loved ones. That belongs to the Lord's sovereign election. What we can say and what we ought to be confident in is that whether or not the Lord brings them to faith, he has good intentions for us by whether or not he brings them to faith. And that's an entirely different matter. Whether or not those around me who I love come to faith, the Lord means good things for me either by bringing them to faith or by not bringing them to faith. That is a difficult one for us to get, right? As, as we struggle with those close to us who have died, do we believe the Lord's intentions are for our good, as he would have us believe? Those are two things that we often need to struggle for. But notice, we stopped at verse 36. Notice, though, that God's work in condemning some And saving some are for the good of those who love God and who are chosen by him. So chapter 4, verse 37. All of this that God has done by trials, signs, uh, war, all of those things that are mentioned in verse 34. Notice what happens in verse 37. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, And brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out nations, driving out before you nations and greater and mightier than you, to bring you in 
and to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. So there are two major themes in verse 37. Because he loved your fathers, and by extension, as we'll find in Deuteronomy 7 someday, he loved you too. That's the, the, great, chap, the great theme of chapter 7. He loved your fathers, and he loved you, which is why he brought you out. So because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them, that's why you have received all of these benefits. And why all of these people, the Egyptians and the Amorites, the Canaanites, all of these people were destroyed. Because he loved you and chose Abraham and his offspring after him. So the Lord's love and the Lord's election lead to one thing for the people on whom he has set his affection, and it leads to something else for another people. Now I have on the board, remember all of this, by the way, is in the context of how does Moses know the Lord will restore his people? That's the context. So what is the assurance Moses has of the Lord's future grace over his people? God restores his people when... His people love him. Deuteronomy 4, 29. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then in Deuteronomy 4, 30, when the people cry out, when you are in tribulation and these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Uh, cry out to him is the when you are in tribulation or when you are in distress. Very quickly, we can go over to Romans. I would not, I cannot be so confident as to say Paul did definitely have Deuteronomy 4 in mind as he wrote Romans 8 and 9. But there is a striking amount of similarities between the two passages. I am confident to say that that, uh, Paul certainly had something like Deuteronomy 4 in mind as he wrote Romans 8 and 9. Notice, to begin with, the context in which much of this happens. In the ESV, over uh, over Romans 8, verse 18, the ESV has uh, an appropriately uh, titled section there, Future Glory. Paul is laying out what he predicts the Lord will do in the future for his people. It is a wonderful section to read. Uh, We believe in resurrection, restoration. Who are those who participate in it? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That those who love God is parallel to those in Deuteronomy 4 who seek them, seek him with all their heart, with all their soul. You seek him with all your heart and with all your soul, runs in parallel with those who love God. Also, those who cry out to him. Romans 8, 26 and 27. So just the preceding two verses there. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul is speaking there about, we cry out, though we cry out, somewhat ignorantly. We don't always know what's in our own best interest. And again, in Deuteronomy 4, what the people are longing for is restoration for the land, but that's not what Moses gives them. He says, you will be restored back to the Lord, but not necessarily the land. Just like Israel doesn't always know what's best for, it's much better to be restored to the Lord than to the land. So we too sometimes miss the mark, and Paul simply says, don't worry about that, the Lord's got you covered. Uh, 
His own spirit groans out on your behalf. And so there is both a crying out and a love for the Lord in both of those passages. That is the condition we meet in order to be part of those who are restored. But why? what is the reason God restores? Well, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 31, it's because he is compassionate and merciful. In Romans 9, verses 15 to 18, it is something very similar. Romans 9, 15 to 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So God's mercy is what Paul points to for the assurance that the Lord is going to do everything that he said he is going to do for our future benefit back in Romans 8, 18 and following. So the assurance is God's own character. But yet there's more than that. God not only tells us what his character is, he's given us evidence of that in times past. We know God is compassionate because he is a God not just of love, but a God of very particular love, a love set on a particular people. Deuteronomy 4:37 has he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. We know God is compassionate because of his love. Romans 8:28 for those who are called according to his purpose and Romans 4:29, 8:29 for those whom he foreknew Now, I'm going to put in one little bit here. In Scripture, love and knowledge are distinct but inseparable characteristics. To foreknow someone or to know someone isn't merely to have a mental apprehension of someone or something. In Scripture, to know someone is to love them. So in Romans 8.28, when it says that he foreknew them, that's not a cold mental foreknowledge. That is a foreknowledge of affection and love and work on behalf of. So those whom he foreknew parallels Deuteronomy 4.37, because he loved your fathers. But then there's also his election. Deuteronomy 4, 31 and 37, which we'll look at 37, and he chose their offspring after them. Romans 9, 15 to 18, we could look at as well. For this very purpose, he raised up Pharaoh so that he might show his power and so that he might have mercy on Israel. That becomes even more pointed in Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And now here's the key line. I mentioned earlier that the Lord's work for his people sometimes results, or sometimes the way he works for his people is by condemning others. Verse 22 is God's work of condemning others for a purpose of, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So God does condemn some for the benefit of his own people. That has to be applied for us all over the place. Those who do not come to faith, the Lord claims, do not come to faith or are not chosen by him for our benefit, for our good. And we have to trust the Lord's intentions in that as well. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And of course, his salvific work 
uh, Romans 8:31 to 39. Uh, we won't. Now uh, we will quickly read that whole section. It's it's worth reading. It's kind of the crescendo of Romans 8. In some ways, Romans 8:31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And there's the nutshell of Paul's confidence that the Lord will do, will do. His future grace holds out for his people. Because he has done this, no doubt, he will not spare anything else. He's given his son, he will, get, he will give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Three times in Deuteronomy 4, Moses gives the expanse of creation. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth, heaven and earth. Paul does the same thing here in Romans 8. The expanse of creation. Who shall bring any charge against God's elected as God who justifies? Verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The expanse of creation. Moses uses the expanse of creation and God's what God has done and what God hasn't done in creation to show his mercy to his people. In Romans 8, Paul looks at that same expanse of creation to say, in all of this, since the Lord uses all of it for his people, there is nothing that can be used against God's people. Rather, the Lord uses it all for them. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 4. We're done with Romans 8, unless there's any questions over it, which I'll ask in just a second. Back to Deuteronomy 4. In the expanse of creation, verse 32. No God has done anything like this. For ask now from the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Has God, has any God, any divine being sent his son to die on behalf of humanity? Verse 36, in all of the expanse of human experience, the Lord himself has made himself known. Out of heaven he lets you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he lets you see his great fire. And you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Boy, the amount of uh, theology that John writes over the self-revelation of God in Christ is just too much to recount. And last, in all the expanse of human experience, since the Lord alone has power over all creation and is present with his people, he alone has authority to command his people and offer them blessing for their obedience. Verse 40. Therefore, based on all of these things that Moses has discussed, therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. Moses began his sermon listen to the statutes and judgments or statutes and rules that I'm commanding you and do them. He ends his sermon with, because God has done all of these things, therefore, listen to the statutes and judgments and do them. And so his whole motivation here is not only to inform Israel cognitively, but to affect Israel ethically, live differently because of what the Lord has done. And this is the great thing the Lord has done. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 is the gospel according to Moses. 
We finished Moses' great sermon of Deuteronomy 4. Questions or thoughts over the chapter and what we've discussed this morning? Okay. I hope that's a good sign. Verses 41 to 43. This text seems out of place. We'll we'll read it and make a few comments. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer might flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in the past. He may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness on the tableland for the Reubenites, Ramoth in Gilead for the Gadites, and Golan in Bashan for the Manassites. Moses has been exhorting the people to pursue life by following the Lord's righteous rules. In fact, if we go back to chapter 4, verse 8, that is exactly what he called it. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this Torah that I set before you today? Moses here sets an example of what it is like uh, or what Israel does in the pursuit of life and following the Lord's righteous rules for the preservation of life. The whole point of it, uh, of the cities of refuge, is so that someone who is not worthy of death may continue to live when death otherwise rests upon their heads. The uh, parallels between uh, the city of refuge, a man who deserves to die for his crime, uh, and yet doesn't deserve to die for his crime, and the way the Lord's instructions navigate the way we are to walk that fine line uh, is, is given good illustration here. And so this text fits uh, neatly. Uh, this section fits nicely here for two reasons. One, Moses is giving an example of what it is like to live righteously, which is you provide life for the one who is not worthy of death. And second, it creates a textual break before Moses transitions into his main sermon, which will run from chapter four, all, uh, chapter five, I suppose, technically, all the way through chapter twenty-six. And so, we have the cities of refuge, which seem out of place but are textually important. Questions or thoughts over that? I'm not going to dive into the geography of it unless you want, but that's good. Anything else there? Yes. Yeah. Right. Good. Okay. Moving on. Introduction to the law. Verses 44 to 49. This is the law or Torah, as I'll mention maybe in a little bit. This is the Torah that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Beyond the Jordan in the valley, opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land in the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites, who lived to the east beyond the Jordan. From Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the sea of the Arabah, under the slopes of Pishkah. Again, we're not going to deal with all that geography. We've done it in times past. These verses are important because they once again summarize God's work on behalf of Israel, and this is the context in which Israel enters the covenant renewal ceremony. So what happens in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses gives this opening exhortation from Deuteronomy 1 to Deuteronomy 4.40. Moses has a second sermon which runs from Deuteronomy 5 to the end of Deuteronomy 26. That giant sermon is the covenant stipulations 
that Israel agrees to before they have the covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 29. So what Moses is about to explain here in Deuteronomy 5 and following is what Israel is supposed to listen to, take to heart, and say, yes, we agree to that, or no, we don't agree to that. We're not going to enter into this covenant ceremony. But what's happening here at the end of Deuteronomy 4 is Moses is uh, giving us this setting. Where did this happen, and what are the circumstances under which it happened? And so this section of Deuteronomy functions like a hinge. It looks back to everything that's happened, summarizes everything we've read in Deuteronomy 1 to 4, but it also functions then as an introduction to everything else that is going to come. Now the way it worked, uh, the way these sorts of things worked in uh, the ancient Near East was this. One king, who was a powerful lord, would overtake other lands that were originally not part of his own estate. When he took over those foreign lands, if it was a relatively peaceful takeover, he would approach the king of the land that he wants or is in the process of conquering, and he would offer terms, terms of agreement, terms of peace. And it was called a suzerainty treaty. You don't need to remember the word, just remember treaty or covenant. The great king comes and he says to this conquer, uh, this, this lesser king, here are the things that I have done for you in the past, and here are the things that I will do for you in the future. And here are the things that you will do as my vassal, as my servant. Here are some things I want you to do. Well, the form that those treaties took, uh, what those contracts looked like, are the It's the same contract that Moses lays out here for the people of Israel. So the marriage contract that you signed 20 years ago is the same sort of marriage contract that we sign now, right? The the form of the contract hasn't changed all that much. The form of the contract that the Lord is entering into with the people of Israel was a well-known contract. A great king makes terms with a lesser king or lesser people. That is exactly what the Lord is doing here. And the way those contracts began was, here's the great thing that the Lord has done for you. Here's the great thing that your Lord, this great king, has done for you. And what Moses does is he says to the people of Israel, here's what your Lord, this great king, has done for you. He's pulled you out of Egypt. He's defeated these kings before you. He's giving you this land. Now here are the things that you will do in return as... Signs of your submission and vassalship to this great king. Here's how you will keep faith with this great king. That's Deuteronomy 5 to 26. What Israel will do as faithful servants of the great king. I have no more comments over Deuteronomy 4, but let's turn quickly to Deuteronomy 5. There is a new beginning in old words. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules or the judgments that I am speaking in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. So the beginning of chapter 5, verse 1, sounds almost exactly like chapter 4, verse 1. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing The statutes and rules or judgments are not only dealing with the Ten Commandments that Moses Moses is going to recite for them in Deuteronomy 5. Because Moses begins his great sermon of Deuteronomy 5 to 26 with this phrase, Hear the statutes and the rules that I am speaking in your hearing. That is the preamble to the whole sermon. So it's not just the Ten Commandments he's talking about. He's talking about everything he's going to teach them in the upcoming 21 chapters. All of this is what you are to pay attention to. All of this is the statutes and the rules. And all of this is what you are to learn. Now here again, Moses not only tells Israel to listen, but to Obey everything that he is teaching. Again, here has that broad range, but the end of verse 1 goes that way. You shall learn them and be careful to do them. 
So Moses is again teaching the people of Israel, which is not spelled out so much, but it is definitely implicit by the you shall learn them. You shall learn them. Everything Moses says is divinely binding on the people of Israel. All of that is what they are to learn. This is the wisdom they are to learn. And here we have the same discipleship pattern that we saw in chapter 4. Hear, learn, keep, and do. All in verse 1. Hear the statutes and rules, learn them, and be careful to do them. Hearing, learning, keeping, and doing. This is the, the appendix, you might say, to, to the sermon this morning. We are not only commanded to hear the words and pay attention to the words and do the words, we are commanded to learn the words. That's, that's step, step 1B. Hear the words, learn the words. Christians are obligated to learn not simply the New Testament, but this is binding on us as well. Learn the words. Learn the words of Moses. We are to spend a great deal of time seeing not only what Moses wrote, but also then meditating and ruminating on how they are to apply to us. And I'll, I'll maybe get a chance to come back and flesh that out just a little bit. But let's move on here to verse 2. Moses, again, is collapsing chronological history into theological history. The Lord your God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. Well, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. Well, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain." The Lord said, and then he goes on with the Ten Commandments we'll look at next week. This morning, though, let's finish off verses 2 to 5. Moses says specifically that the Lord made a covenant with this group of people. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. And then he says who the Lord did not make this covenant with in verse 3. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant. Now, there is some debate among scholars. Is he referring to the patriarchs, or is he referring to the former generation? Now, clearly he's referring to the patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were not at the mountain. Clearly, they're included. But is that all that is included? I would say Moses is saying that the Lord did not make the covenant with this generation's parents. Because in the rest of verse 3, Moses clarifies who is it that was part of that covenant. Not with our fathers, but, the rest of verse 3, with us. Who are all of us here, alive today? There's actually three ways Moses clarifies who it is the Lord made the covenant with. It is us. Let's see if I can find it here. He made this covenant not with our fathers, but with us. We who are here today, all of us alive. He's specifying who this covenant was made with, and he is also specifying who it was not with. And by implication, I think we are to take it not primarily with their forefathers, which seems historically problematic. I will confess. So here we have this. In one sense, God made a covenant with all Israel, the rebellious and the faithful. And in fact, their rebellion and their connection to the covenant is part of the reason they were killed in the wilderness. Uh, the currently living were a part of it, as well as the recently dead. But in another sense, only those who are now alive and faithful to the Lord are truly in covenant with him. We could say that one can be in covenant with the Lord and not be in covenant relationship with the Lord. 
And what Moses is doing is he is collapsing all of the chronological history into a moment of theological history. He already did this in chapter 4. My guess is most of us missed it. I certainly did at first. Look to chapter 4, verse 45. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Forty years of history, gone. Came out of Egypt, plains of Moab, in the valley of Beth Peor. Everything else in between there, as, it's as if it didn't happen. It's all collapsed into one moment. What is Moses doing here? I think he's drawing on the second sense of the covenant, which is, again, both the rebellious and the faithful were part of a covenant in one sense. On the other hand, the rebellious aren't in covenant with the Lord. Go to Psalm 50. And I think Psalm 50 gives us the explanation or the sense in which we are to understand what Moses is doing in Deuteronomy 5. Psalm 50, verses 14 to 17. Psalm 50, verse 14. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Now notice this in verse 15. And call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Covenants require the participation of two parties. There is the Lord who rescues his people and there are the people who receive blessing. The participation in the covenant is verse 14. Offer sacrifices of thanksgiving, perform your vows. The blessings that come, call on me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. But for those who refuse participation in the covenant, there is no blessing. But to the wicked, verse 16 now, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? There is no blessing because they reject the terms of the covenant. Verse 17, for you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. Now, Psalm 50, verses 16 and 17, is not referring to the people outside the covenant people of Israel. Why in the world would they be reciting the Lord's lips or reciting the covenant on their lips? That's not the point. What's happening in verses 16 and 17 is the wicked are those who think they are part of the covenant, who do not do what is in verse 16 and 17, and therefore they do not receive the blessings. The Lord is saying to the people of Israel who think they're part of the covenant, you have no right to recite my covenant on your lips. You cannot invoke blessing for yourself when you're part of the wicked. So Psalm 50 is making the distinction all are in, in covenant in one sense, but in a different sense, only those who participate according to the terms of the covenant are truly in covenant. What Moses is doing in Deuteronomy 5 is he's doing that. He's saying only those who are alive today who have been faithful to the covenant, those are the ones who entered into covenant with the Lord. Don't apostatize. Stay in relationship with the Lord. Stay in covenant with the Lord. So we can be in covenant with God without being in covenant relationship with him in another perspective. And what Moses is doing, by saying it this way, Moses is stressing that by spiritual heritage, it is as if each generation, those who are alive, uh, they stand Sinai anew as beneficiaries of the experience. So going back again to chapter 4, verse 45, these are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules that Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt beyond the Jordan and the valley opposite Beth, Beth Peor. Most of the people were not alive when they came out of the Exodus. 
there is perhaps the oldest generation, some of whom may and probably were alive when they came out of Egypt. They were under 20. They perhaps survived the wilderness wanderings. So there may have been some. Most of them were not. Everyone 40 and younger was not born when they came out of Egypt. But Moses is saying, when they came out of Egypt and they stood in the Jordan Valley, that's all one group, the way Moses has it. And what he is doing is he is saying, all of us who are alive today, we're beneficiaries of what the Lord has done. In Egypt, we're beneficiaries of what he has done with the kings of the Amorites. We're beneficiaries of the covenant that not just was merely made there, but all of the things that are tied into it. And so one of the reasons Moses has a covenant renewal ceremony in Deuteronomy 29, what's the point of having a covenant renewal ceremony, right? Um, in, in my mind, it's almost parallel to why, why renew your vows, which some people do, um, but why do that? What's happening in Deuteronomy 29 is Moses is telling Israel, look, you've had a lot of the implications of the initial terms of the covenant. There are a lot more implications that go along with that. Moses has spent 40 years teaching the people of Israel, what are the implications of this covenant? And when they get to the plains of Moab, and they've seen the Lord do great things in beginning to give them the land, kings of the Amorites, he asks them again, do you really want to enter covenant with this Lord? You've had 40 years of instruction. The covenant that we entered in Moab, have you really signed on to that? Have you really signed on to that covenant? And let's make sure that we are all on the same page of that covenant now that we're on the cusp of entering the promised land. So in some sense, though the covenant was made and even ratified at Exodus, the covenant wasn't really completed until Moses was done giving Israel instructions. So the covenant cut at Horeb. It was perhaps initial, uh, initiated there, but it wasn't completed there, at least not until the people come to Beth Peor, and I would actually argue not until they get to Shechem inside the land of Canaan where they have another covenant renewal ceremony, another story. But uh, all of that to say Moses is collapsing the generations all into one and saying everything that was binding on them is binding on you because the Lord has done it for you as he did for them. They didn't enter into covenant with the Lord. You're alive. You're in covenant with the Lord. You have opportunity to be in covenant with the Lord and opportunity to receive the blessings. Go for it. That was a mouthful. I'll pause right there. Thoughts or questions before we wrap it up? Yeah, so just like the second generation here, we, our, our spiritual heritage is we are the beneficiaries of what he did in Exodus and with the Amorites as well. Yes. Great. Have a good week. God willing, I'll see you next week.